Welcome to Commons and Chronicles, the podcast where we talk about all the best creative commons and reusable open game license content. If you need resources for your creative writing, game design, or you just love lore, Commons and Chronicles is for you. Everyone, this is Clatu. You're listening to Chronicles and Commons. In this episode, I want to do I want to take a little little bit of a break, I guess, away from the dragon content, although uh, there are some great third-party dragons that I have yet to cover. But I, I did want to kind of step back from that for a moment, because uh, as I've probably mentioned before, I have moved recently to a different part of New Zealand. I'm on the South Island now. And the South Island, uh, specifically, I'm, I'm in the south of the South Island, quite near the very bottom of the, of the island. There are two islands on in New Zealand. There's the north and the south, um, the bottom of the south. So I'm I'm as close to Antarctica as you can get without being in Antarctica, I guess. Um, that might not be strictly true. I'm, I'm not sure, but I think it is. I think it's pretty true. I'm pretty close to Antarctica. Um, and as it happens, uh, in the southern hemisphere, the seasons are reversed from the northern hemisphere. That's that's whether I'm on the South Island or not, it's just the, the whole hemisphere. And so, right now, in the place that I'm living, it's um, more or less mid-autumn, which also isn't strictly true, it's actually closer to spring than mid-autumn, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm getting to a point here. It's mid-autumn, and there's a festival in China for the mid-autumn um, mark. For, for when mid-autumn happens. And the reason I'm aware of this at all is because the town that I'm living in right now was historically a gold rush town. Seems odd. Um, but apparently there were gold rushes all over the world. The the one that, at least growing up in the U.S., that, we, that I heard about was the big famous one in California, 1848. Or the 49ers is, is the, when it really picked up. So... 1849, big gold rush in California. Now, apparently, and I'm I'm using some extrapolation from from history, uh, from from bits and pieces of museum things that I've seen, but I, I get the feeling that there was a certain class of person at at one point who who sort of became a gold rush person for whatever reason they they sort of latched onto this idea that gold is hiding within the hills of of some place and where there was a gold rush to be had they were there and i'm i'm saying this because i get the feeling that there's a lot of there are a lot of things that are in co- that are similar across uh, the US and Australia and uh, even Russia some 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 part of Russia uh, and so, uh, some places here in New Zealand, and I only know that now because I've I've seen the New Zealand and the U.S. one very close, and I've read a little bit about the others, and getting enough of a sense for it that I'm that I'm willing to make this wild hypothesis that there's just that there was a gold rush scene back in the 1800s, in the mid to late 1800s. There was a scene of uh, of of hey everyone there's a gold rush here you should go there and try to find gold now economically and socially i think that this is one of the most embarrassing things of modern civilization uh, 
and it, it only continues today in lots of different ways. But certainly it, it is one of those things that highlights for us as humans the the lack of of wealth distribution. Because you had literally people who were desperate enough, who were so desperate in their in their station in life that it seemed to make sense to them to go to a to go thousands of miles on a boat at the time uh, to travel thousands of miles to a different country to a different land and to do nothing but pitch a tent or maybe construct a shanty little shack for themselves and dig for gold all day and that was the way that they were going to strike it rich that was the way that they were going to raise themselves out of their relative uh, poverty and that was pretty common. Now, there was another angle to this, and that was a lot of uh, well-to-do people who had the money to sort of go in and pay other people to dig for them and, and that kind of resourcefulness. And that's kind of embarrassing in its own right, that, that, that there were people who could afford to go exploit the land in such a way so that they could then make more money themselves. And interestingly, a lot of those people seemed to go in exploit the land and then move out because the the thrill of it for them was the the finding part not the not the maintaining part so once they'd found gold then they would move on to find gold elsewhere and that was kind of interesting uh to to hear about either way one of the one of the things that happened here in new zealand was and it may have happened in the u.s but i never heard about it but in New Zealand, a lot of people from China got wind of the fact that there was this gold rush over there. And New Zealand being closer to China than, say, America is, um, I, I guess we got a lot of – we, being New Zealand uh, – got a lot of Chinese gold rushers. Uh, to, to the extent that in the town that I'm living in right now, there is a Chinese village not too far out of town, about a kilometer out. Uh, and embarrassingly, it's a kilometer out of town because the people at the time decided that they didn't want any immigrants in the town. And so they said, you can't live here in town. You have to live a kilometer outside of town. So that's a little bit awkward. It's a historic village now. It doesn't, people don't live there. It's, it's just a couple of, uh, it's really an archaeological site, honestly, uh, because a lot of the buildings are no longer there. There are some buildings. There are some reconstructed buildings. And then there's the dig. The dig is not active right now, but it has been active in the past couple of years. So it's it's something that's ongoing uh, and it's being managed by a, a Chinese society, a local Chinese society, to uncover their own their their their, their the history of their of their ancestors of people who who are the reason that they are now in New Zealand themselves. It's quite fascinating, and because of the proximity of of this historic Chinese village, and because there are people now who are descendant from those, that from that village, um, there, there's quite a lot more Chinese culture here than I would have imagined, I would have expected, I just didn't, I didn't know it, so I didn't expect it. And one of those, one of the, the ways that that is coming into, coming into play is this idea of the Chinese Mid-Autumn Festival. It is the second most important festival after the Chinese New Year uh, in the Chinese calendar. In the in, culturally, it's it's important. 
the festival celebrates um, specifically the autumn full moon, which usually is about on the uh, 15th day on the 8th moon, according to a lunar calendar. Chinese people believe, uh, historically, I mean, I, I can't speak for all Chinese people now, but his, the, the, the sentiment is that there was a belief, historically, that the autumn full moon is the roundest and brightest full moon that you'll ever get. So, lanterns on that day, on that celebration, are a common feature because it's all about light and 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 good cheer and being bright and lighting up the night and so on. So this year, the uh, mid-autumn festival falls on Friday the 13th of September, which as I record this is mere just just about a week away. And when it is being released, it'll have been uh, yesterday, I think. Something like that. And of course, when you're hearing it, all bets are off, because I don't know when you're listening to a podcast. It's kind of hard to track that sort of thing. Either way, Friday 13, September 2019 is, is when it happened uh, this time around at the recording of this episode. There are a couple of different legends, and that's kind of why I'm bringing this up. There are a couple of Chinese legends that I've heard recently um, from a from one of the people managing the festival, and she is Chinese, so this is quite likely pretty authentic um, in 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 its history. Whether it's been changed a lot or a little, I cannot say. I don't know. I've never been to China myself. I've never talked to people about about this kind of thing uh, before. Um, so I'm hearing it now through someone who has lived in in New Zealand uh, and has uh, ancestors who have lived in in New Zealand who were Chinese. This festival has been celebrated in China for over 3,000 years. That's a long time. It's um, longer than Christmas has been celebrated, if you think about it. The first legend is called the Lady in the Moon. So once upon a time, there were ten sun day. There were ten suns in the sky. The heat from the suns killed the crops and people were dying. One day, an excellent archer shot down all but one sun. Earth was saved and life returned to normal. To express the people's gratitude, the queen presented a bottle of elixir to the archer, which could make him immortal. The archer didn't want to become immortal because he wanted to stay with his wife. So he hid the elixir. A uh, thief one one night tried to steal the elixir uh, when the archer was away. Oh, it wasn't at night, it was a day, sorry. One day when the archer was away. Uh, and to prevent the elixir from being stolen, the wife of the archer drank the elixir herself. Now she promptly floated up to heaven, because when you're immortal, I guess that's what you do. And the archer was quite sad when he found that his wife had gone on to be immortal without him. And on full moons, he would bring food and offerings to worship and remember his wife. So that's one story. The other is the legend of the rabbit. Once upon a time, there was a fox, a monkey, and a rabbit living in the forest. One day, three immortals, pretending to be beggars, came to the forest and asked the three animals for food. Both the fox and monkey quickly offered food, but the rabbit didn't have anything and kind of felt guilty about it. 
So he, the, the rabbit offered himself by jumping into a fire. The three immortals were very moved by the, ra the rabbit's sacrifice. They made the rabbit an immortal, sending it to live in the moon palace. I don't know what the moon palace is, so we'll just assume that it's a palace like on the moon or maybe of the moon or around the moon. This is why rabbit lanterns are very popular during the lantern festival celebrations, uh, and children are typically told this story on a clear full moon night uh, that you can see both the, the maiden and the rabbit in the moon. And that's um, those are the two legends that are propagated around this lantern festival, at least locally here. I, I don't know how this compares to... Um, celebrations of this festival on on what I'll call the mainland right now, which is China itself. I, I have no idea what traditions are held there, or whether they even celebrate this right now. Um, but I get the sense that they do, and I get the sense that these stories are, are probably pretty typical. I think that the interesting thing about these little stories, both, both the one about the rabbit and the, the, the woman, is that there was a sacrifice being made and that the reward for the sacrifice was immortality. Uh, it's interesting to me that w one of the sacrifices being made, I don't think, was probably totally understood. Like, I don't think the woman probably quite understood that if she were to drink the elixir, she would be transported um, to the heavens. Maybe she did, and she did it not so much as to protect the elixir, but to protect the heavens from a thief. I'm not sure what the, the motivations there were. I, I don't get the sense from the story that she did it to, to get away from her husband, certainly. Um, he, he seemed to pre be pretty fond of her, and I'm assuming the feeling was probably mutual. But it's kind of interesting, because if we think back to the, the old days of this podcast, where we were talking about the gods of Porphyra, there were a couple of goddesses who became goddesses after a after some kind of remarkable deed being performed on you know in the material plane whether it was um going out to help people gather up crops uh when 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 something bad was about to happen but but instead of running you know staying and and bringing in the crops or something uh or or whether it was um, sacrificing in battle or, or whatever the, the sacrifice might be, the idea is that, yeah, through through some great act of sacrifice, of, of martyrdom, I guess, almost, uh, you could then be lifted to immortality. On on the one hand, I, I, I see why that would be a, a folk story worth telling. I, I see why that would be something that you might want to impress upon a, a society. Now, we're talking about a fantasy world here, so it doesn't really actually matter, but just kind of extrapolating the, the fantasy world and the, the real world, I can, I can see how that, that there's that tradition of, hey, look, if you do something selfless, if you do something for your community, then, you're, then you are rewarded by the, the gods. On the other hand, I kind of see that that's kind of a, a, a potential for, for almost... An oppressive kind of expectation you know like well you must be a martyr to be good like in order to achieve goodness you must experience pain i don't know how valuable a lesson that is in in the broad in a very broad sense uh, or or i should say maybe i don't know 
I don't know if it's a lesson that's always taken exactly as it is intended. I think sometimes people get a little bit confused by that and think that in order, you know, that, that if they are suffering, then they must be being good, whereas maybe they're just being stupid or something, you know? I mean, there are lots of reasons that people suffer, and it's not always because they're being really good and, and loving. Uh, quite the opposite. Some people suffer as a way to, to garner sympathy, and you wouldn't call that good, I don't think. So I don't know how, how well it translates into into sort of into sociology and psychology, but it's an interesting thing to, to note as a as a fantasy trope, and I guess also as a real world trope that maybe ought to be uh, avoided, or that certainly could be ex- exploited. And and there's always room for exploration of that. I think in our games as well. So that's the um, that's the Chinese Lantern Festival, such as it is in New Zealand on the South Island. I hope that it was informative, gave you a little bit of local flavor. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Klaatu. You can reach me uh, via email at klaatu at member.fsf.org. You can also usually catch me in IRC as not Klaatu. I'm on the Freenode network. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.